For the time that is ours to share together, I want to talk a little bit about peer pressure. Peer pressure. Peer pressure or social pressure is direct influence on people by peers or individual who gets encouraged to follow their peers by changing their attitudes, their values, or behaviors to conform to those of an influencing group or individual. This type of pressure differs from general social pressure because it causes an individual to change in response to a feeling. Uh, uh, the feeling of being pressured or influenced from a peer group. Social uh, groups that are affected by a peer pressure include both membership groups where individuals are formally members of it, like a political party or a trade union, and it also includes cliques, which membership is not clearly defined. But the difference in peer pressure is that you don't have to be a member or try to become a member of a particular group to be influenced by the peer pressure. Uh, the pressure comes from what the press. The pressure comes from what the people are trying to get you to do. I don't know. I mean, maybe you might pretend to be a Christian if you know it might get you some votes. You might make the rounds on Sunday mornings to church after church but can't tell Genesis from Revelation if we pointed it out to you. It might cause you to eat a certain type of way when you're around certain type of people. Peer pressure can have you buy things that you don't want to with money that you don't have to impress people who don't like you anyway. Peer pressure will affect how you work on the job. Peer pressure will affect how you work in certain social situations. I've been a victim of peer pressure before. I'm a victim of peer pressure on the regular. I've got a personal trainer that was gifted to me for Christmas. The pastors got to drop a few LBs, try to get healthy so that I can be there for my children and, and then my grandchildren. So I've been working out on a regular basis with this trainer. When you go to the trainer's house, he's got a garage set up with all kinds of torture device. I mean, exercise equipment. Exercise equipment. And he'll play music. And uh, you can pick whatever music you want, and he'll play that music off his phone. And uh, I, I grew up, and I was my heyday, you could say, was in the late 90s. So there's a lot of late 90s hip-hop 
that I want to hear when I'm working out. And he's about my age, so he likes that. But I bring that up because I say that the peer pressure affects me because I can hear the music stop when I'm working out. And me being a technological geek, I know something about phones. You can't, on most phones, record and play music at the same time. So if you're playing music at the same, if you're playing music and you decide to turn on the camera, the music's going to stop. So I get affected by the peer pressure because I know when I hear the music stop that my trainer is recording me working out. And that this is later going to be on Facebook and Instagram with me tagged in it. And so I might get a little stronger and straighten up a little harder. (laughs) Yeah. When I hear the music stop. So sometimes peer pressure is a good thing. Peer pressure is all around us. Whether we like to admit it or not. We see a group of people, there is a desire to fit in. There is no organization that is exempt from that. Some would argue that's part of the reason why the church doesn't grow as fast as it should because people join or people start coming around a particular church and they don't know where to fit in. The adage goes, though, pressure will bust a pipe. But there's also another adage that says pressure makes diamonds. Peer pressure can cause us to do the right thing, the wrong thing, or even quit. So it's not about the pressure, so to speak. It's about how we handle the pressure and what the pressure is trying to get us to do. Jesus, here in the Sermon on the Mount, just got finished talking about the poor in spirit and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and show mercy and are being peacemakers. And so now he's showing what that means to act like in our day-to-day lives. It's nice to hear a good sermon. It's nice when you're around the church folk to be a certain way and say the right things. I'm blessed and highly favored. I'm too blessed to be stressed. Uh, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. That's good when you're around the church folk that you act a certain way. But the, the main crux of it is how do you act when you are not around church folk? And so Jesus is here talking about kingdom actions. He tells us that we are the salt of the earth. They are to be a good, not a useless presence in the world. Salt is used all over the Bible. Salt is meant to enhance. Uh, It provides flavor. It provides seasoning. Now, I know some of us like some extra seasoning as well. I mean, salt, we need a little more than salt. We might need some Laurie seasoned salt or or some Tony Sacheries or some nature seasoning. But the, the, the seasoning, the point of it is it is meant to enhance salt was used in Leviticus 2 to season grain offerings to the Lord and in Ezekiel it says that Ezekiel the priest threw the salt on burnt offerings salt also meant sacrifice and loyalty and in in, in Ezra and Numbers when they were coming together it was called sharing salt when folks ate with each other and there was a covenant that would go on salt was about loyalty Salt was not only about loyalty, but it was also about preservation. Because in Job and Colossians, salt is used to preserve. So the salt of the earth, when he's saying it, it means to be pure. It means to be loyal. 
It means to preserve some things when we also have to make some sacrifices to help preserve the body of Christ. Salt does not exist for itself. Salt is not something you eat by itself. I mean, unless you just like blood pressure medication. (laughs) Salt is meant to be added on things. And so when we are the salt of the earth, we are not just to be for ourselves. We are to be out in the world helping to preserve it, being loyal, making these sacrifices for it, sharing with each other. Uh, My professor, Dr. Jamie Clark Soul, said time and time again that you cannot be a Christian outside of community. Again, it's good to come to church. It's good to hear the word. It's good to study. It's good to pray. It's good to fast. But we also have to interact with the people. Jesus said to love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. So when he talks about this salt, it's not for ourselves, it's for others. But we also have to be careful because the Bible also shows us that too much salt is a bad thing. Salt can be used to damage the land. When we talk about salt, there has to be a place, there has to be a balance, there has to be something both inside and outside of our normal circles. And we have to be useful. Uh, they had these large salt blocks back then, not the, the, the Morton's cans that we have today, but they had these large salt blocks, and it would be common for people to take a taste of the salt block to see if it still had flavor. If there was not flavor, it would be thrown out. Salt was not made to blend in. Salt was not made to be hidden. Salt was not made to be flavorless. It was made to be put to use. You know, when we had this thing called Methodism, the holy movement back in the day when John Wesley was going around with these open-air tent revivals and preaching and moving in the Holy Spirit, they would have what they called holy clubs. And the people who ran these holy clubs would come around and ask a couple questions. You know, they'd ask, is it well with your soul? We ought to be concerned about the soul, but there was something that is often left out, particularly when we look at how some of these Methodist churches are operating now. If you wasn't growing, if you wasn't influencing the people, if you weren't in the community, if you weren't doing something to make your presence known, you got shut down. Salt is not meant to be useless. Salt is meant to be useful. And he says that we are the salt of the earth and he's telling us that we need to be useful in the world. It's nice to dress up. Everybody looks so beautiful today. But what else are we doing in the community? The litmus test for a church has always been if you shut it down, would the neighborhood even know it was gone? And so we are to be the salt of the earth. We are to influence it. And then we are also to be the light of the world. The light is to let their Good deeds shine for all to see. We are meant to be used. We are meant to be useful. We are meant to be seen. Does the community see us? Does the neighborhood see us? For salt, being salty is not optional. The salt is either salty or it's not. And when it's not salty, do we call it salt? If the salt is not salty, do we use it? It's the same thing with light. 
He says that we don't shine lights. We don't put cover over the light. This should not be a choice for us regardless of what we are. We, are need, we need to be disciples and disciples are light for a dark world. We ought to be disciples no matter what kind of peer pressure is around us. We ought to be able to use it for our advantage. Some of us may not to like to operate when others were looking, but I'm here to tell you they are looking anyway. There is always somebody watching what we do. There is always somebody reading the Bible through us. There is always somebody looking at this Jesus and seeing if they want to try it out through us. And how we succumb or how we uh, operate over the peer pressure could be all the difference in the world. Uh, and so we are to function as salt and light in the world and we are to follow the law. Uh, we have the redeemer and the law. Let the church say redeemer. redeemer. Uh, we are talking about Jesus. Don't. It's red letters in my Bible. That means Jesus is talking. He says that do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. There are plenty of parts of the Bible that people would like to throw out because we are used to an on-demand lifestyle. We take what we want and throw out what we don't. And we love to take away certain things and say that Jesus got rid of all that. That ain't what Jesus said. Ooh, it got quiet in here. I'm, I'm still in the book. I'm still in the book. I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. God's grace sometimes gets mistaken for acceptance. God's grace means that the door is open and we are welcome to walk through it. It doesn't mean the door comes to us. The same Jesus that hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and all of these people also preached about greed and lust. Hello, hello, check, check, one, two. So he hung around these people, but these people were transformed. Amen, microphone, amen, desk, amen, the lights. In both cases, I'm not condemning either one. I'm just saying in both cases, they need God. And we seem to want to stop short at saying that it's there and that means everything is fine. There still needs to be some conversion. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All the old things have passed away. And I'm not saying it to say that there is perfection expected. We are all working towards perfection. But I'm saying we ought to be making some strides. We ought to try. We ought not to sit in the same old thing and say, well, God's okay and God knows my heart. We ought to be working towards it. And so we have the redeemer and the law and then we have the redeemed and the law. Let the church say redeemed. Those who obey God's law will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, yeah, right around verse 19, it says, There who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and others will be called to the kingdom, the least in the kingdom, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So those who obey the law, it doesn't say those who went to seminary. It doesn't say those who are full-time pastors. We all 
are priests in our own right. We all are living examples. We all are out there conveying Christianity to other people, whether we want to admit it or not. It's nice to think that you can go in and go to work and not have anything done, but eventually somebody's going to want to know. Why is it you so happy? Why is it you not upset and cussing out the boss like I want to right now? The way we operate amongst the peer pressure, the way we operate amongst our peers is preaching a sermon every day. Every day we go to school, every day we go to work, every day we're in the grocery store, every day we're waiting in line to get on a plane. We are preaching sermons and we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world and so we need to be salty. We need to be able to shine. Don't cover up your light, let it shine. And so those who obey will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to talk about unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've had a problem in our present company included of beating up on the Pharisees as if the Pharisees were some sort of evil person. The Pharisee was yet but a job. There were certain Pharisees that did some things in the text, but that does not mean that all Pharisees and all Sadducees are bad. These are just people that studied the law. They studied the law of God. And they did it on top of having a job. So you look at Pharisees like Paul, who was a Hebrew among Hebrews, but he still was a tent maker. So again, I say you don't have to go to seminary to be, in, to be diligent about studying God's word. Amen. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to have reverend in front of your title in order to get into this word. We all need to get into the word. I, I, I'm, uh, there's, there's a particular type of person I am often fascinated with. Uh, Full disclosure, uh, even though I'm a pastor, I have some Muslims in my family. High-ranking Muslims over particular regions in the area. And there's something that has always fascinated me about them. Not their religion, per se, but them. You have this thing that's called a caliphate. And a caliphate is someone that trains from the time they are a young child. They have to be able to sing and they have to have a good memory. And what they do once a year with the caliphates, once they have reached this status, is they have a festival where they sing the entire Quran cover to cover. Now, in terms of page length, the the Quran is about the length of the entire New Testament. So it's not as big as the Bible, but just the fact that someone would be willing to be that diligent about their holy book. And some of us won't go to Bible study. And then on top of that, they're able to do this cover to cover, but they're also able to quote the Bible. seen Farrakhan quote more Bible in pulpits than I've seen preachers. Oh, y'all was waiting for some jumping and bucking. I I don't feel like that today. 
We got to be salt and light in the world regardless of what kind of peer pressure is going on, regardless of what somebody has to say about it, regardless of what the outside thinks about it. We got to be salt and light for the world. And how can we be salt and light for the world if we don't know what the man that told us to be salt and light said? And so we ought to be able to be able to learn the law. There are plenty of things in there that are for our good. Did you know that you are the apple of God's eye? Did you know that you are the righteousness of God? Did you know that you're supposed to be the head and not the tail above and never be beneath? You're supposed to be the lender and not the borrower. Did you know that it says my God shall supply all his needs toward his riches of glory in Christ Jesus? These things are in the text. We spend some time in the text and the text will get in us. Regardless of what kind of peer pressure is going on. Regardless of what other people think, we ought to be able to walk forth in God and be salt and light. For if we are to be believers, we have to be salty. I spent this weekend in Dallas again for a class called Creative Preaching storytelling and I found something that was interesting and I had to ask brother Michael if I could use this story because it fit just right in there and he let me use it and I thank God because I might have just had to use it without his permission if I didn't but we were telling personal stories and Michael was talking about how he went to school and he was a four sport athlete Top tier, all state, being recruited in baseball, football, track, and, and um, basketball. And because he was such a popular athlete, he kept his grade point average on the low. Because we were hard. It, 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 the, when we talk about peer pressure, uh, uh, there, there are certain phrases that make me angry, and one of them is acting white. What is wrong with a young African-American man speaking the king's English properly? What is wrong with African-Americans going and doing well in school? It seems like whenever that happens, you get told you are acting white. And so he talked about how he had to keep his academic achievements on the low. Because it was bad enough that he was having all of these athletic achievements. So he kept his academic achievements on the low. And Michael had no desire to go to college. And one teacher asked him about college when it came to his senior year. And he said, I don't want to go to college. And he said, what is your grade average? And he said, A minus. What? A minus. He was averaging an A minus while he was a four sport athletic star but he kept his academic achievements low because he had succumbed to peer pressure and so this teacher went on ahead and paid for him to take the ACT exam so that he could go on to college he paid for him to take that test and he went over and took the test and Michael came back mad Michael came back mad because when he saw his ATC score, ACT score it was a 31 
And he was mad because he thought it was a 31 out of 100. He didn't know that the highest you could score on the ACT was a 36. And so Michael then went on because he did not allow. They said, keep this under low. We're going to get you in. We don't care what everybody else has to say. We're going to get you to college. And Michael went on to get a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. And then he went on to go to the military and serve until he retired. Because somebody said, you ought not care about the, the peer pressure. Don't let these people tell you that being smart in class is acting white. Being smart in class is being smart in class. That person that is smart in class, you probably going to have to call boss when you get on on in the air. The ones that's being smart in class are the ones you might have to go to and say, can I borrow some money? But he did not allow the peer pressure to, to, to help him, to, to, to deter him rather. And he went on about his way and got a college education. But that's not where the peer pressure ended because the peer pressure was going on even in seminary. One of the colleagues, one of our esteemed colleagues at the cemetery, seminary, <laughs> seminary, told him that he would not make a good preacher. Said, I don't really know if this is for you, Michael. And he told a story on top of that while we were talking in between class. And he told a story about how it got out that he had scored that 31 on the ACT and that he had an A minus average in class. And so one of the students got, a couple of the students got together and said they were going to jump Michael. They were going to beat Michael up. And so they, they, they devised a plan and they said they had somebody just go tell Michael that they had a young girl that wanted to spend some time with Michael outside. And they told Michael to come meet this girl at the tree. But Michael had another friend that knew what was going on and stopped him halfway and said, no, Michael, the girl's not at the tree. The girl's at the parking lot. So you go that way, and I'm going to go ahead and head to the tree. Well, this young man went to the tree and got beat up because he let them know, he had let Michael know that these guys wanted to beat him up. And I told him, if, you, if the person that said you can't preach, that's a lie if I ever heard one. Because that story will preach by itself. You mean to tell me that you had a punishment lined up, and the friend told you to go to a tree. But the friend, another friend, went to the tree in your place. We are already at Friday morning. The Bible says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And just the same way that that friend went to the tree and took that punishment for you, Jesus went to the tree on a hill called Calvary and took that punishment for us. That was supposed to be our crown of thorns. That was supposed to be our cat of nine tails. That was supposed to be us being blindfolded and say, prophesy, which one of us punched you? That's supposed to be us carrying that cross to Golgotha, a.k.a. the place of the skull, a.k.a. Calvary. That's supposed to be us upon that cross, nailed in our hand, piercing our side, and here lies the king of the Jews on the top. That's supposed to be us that would have had died. But I thank God that I had a friend that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He took 
my place. And that is not where the story ends. He died, but three days later, he got up with all power in his hand. And I'm still glad that's not where the story ends. Because one day soon, he's coming back again. Will you be ready? I want to be ready. Won't he make a way for you? Won't he open doors for you? Won't he provide for you? Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, living a life I could not live, living a death, taking a death I could not die. He took our place on a tree. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the doors of the church are open, and we invite you to come.